0: This morning we're talking about testing the heart. I hope that you're making use of your study guide. Uh, The purpose of the study guide is to give us the biblical background of the passage that we're studying. So we have some things that will not be on the study guide, but that kind of helps you get ready for the flow of the action here in this particular incident in Abraham's life. Abraham is moving to a new location, relocation. Then he has a little relapse. There is divine revelation, It gets a reproof, and then we see restoration. John Owen, the great biblical expositor of the 17th century, has identified four seasons in life when a Christian really has to be careful to avoid being led astray into some sin. See which one of these categories you might be tested in. The first is... Times of outward prosperity. We probably all qualify for that one in the United States. You can think of the parable of the rich fool. You can think of King David in a time of prosperity. Let his guard down. Times of spiritual coldness and formality. You can think of the Pharisees in Scripture. Israel's history and also church history. I trust that we wouldn't be too much affected by that one times when one has enjoyed rich fellowship with the Lord. In the New Testament church, it was said that believers were of one heart and one soul. And that's where Ananias and Sapphira came in and lied about the money that they gave and met with a quick demise there. You can think of John the Baptist, Elijah, and Moses, who went into spiritual depression after rich times with the Lord. And then finally, at times of self-confidence, you remember Peter, who was a very confident fellow, and the rich young ruler, who was confident that he had kept all God's commandments from the days of his youth. Now, if we're considering Abraham, where would he qualify in any of these tests? Well, it certainly was a time of outward prosperity. It certainly was a time when he had enjoyed rich fellowship with the Lord the Lord coming to him last time in our last lesson to tell him in just a year he would have the promised son born. So where do we stand this morning? Here is an important truth that is reiterated for us in scripture. God tests the heart. It's kind of like being in school. When we have some spiritual lesson, we encounter some lesson. We need to learn that lesson We need to demonstrate that we have learned the lesson, and we always get a test. You get a new chapter in life, you get a new test. And if we pass the test, we go on to bigger and better things in our growth and spiritual maturity. If we fail the test, it's a setback, and we have to back up and do some of the same things over again, learn some of the same lessons, and that's what's going on today in this passage uh, concerning Abraham we find that recurring sin cannot be overcome by a single effort. It's something that we're going to have to focus on and work at if we're going to overcome recurring sin. So we see Abraham's relocation, a new test for him. In verse 1, if you have your Bibles, we see that after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham moved from the oaks of Mamre near Hebron, toward the Negev that's the south country and settled between Kadesh and Shur then he sojourned in a Philistine city that was the capital of the land of Philistia at that time and we know from archaeological discoveries that it was a very wealthy city a well-to-do city and we wonder why did he go there Gerar was the name of the city What could have possibly possessed Abraham to pack up that many people, maybe a thousand people, and move to a new location? Well, we're not told. We can only guess. Perhaps the distant sight of a burned-out landscape of Sodom and Gomorrah was a painful reminder to him. Couldn't even find ten righteous people in the city of Sodom. So it was destroyed. Perhaps when the wind changed, that burned smell that you get when you burn something on the oven was drifting over toward where he was, maybe combined with the smell of sulfur, very objectionable. And so for whatever reason, he decided to move. God knew that this was another occasion for a test to Abraham to see what was in his heart not for God to see what was in his heart, because God knows what's in our hearts. But many times he gives us an opportunity for us to see what is in our own hearts. And we've seen many times that we have quoted the verse in Proverbs 28, 26, he is a fool who trusts in his own heart. So if I'm moving along in life, just following my heart, kind of the American dream, follow your own heart, Sometimes God would allow me to see some of the difficulties with following my own heart. So Abraham suffers a relapse, claiming Sarah as his sister. We've seen this back in chapter 12 when the famine came and he went down to Egypt. And just as he got inside the border of Egypt, he thought of this. He was fearful and he told them that Sarah was his sister. So when we get to chapter 20 and verse 2, We find Abraham telling the same lie again. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for this lady, Sarah, and added her to his harem. She must have been a very good-looking 90-year-old woman. We don't know exactly what the explanation would be for that, but it's possible that God had rejuvenated her physically for the birth of the promised son that was going to be coming later that year. What would have caused Abraham to commit this same sin again? The same thing that causes us to commit the same sin again. Something down in our hearts, a root problem there, that would just work its way out in our words and our deeds. For Abraham, it was fear fear and a lack of trust in God. And Abraham said in verse 11, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. Why would Abraham, the man of God, the great man of faith, go down again to be unequally yoked with unbelievers in the city of Gerar? We're not told the answer to that question. We could only wonder, But we are told why he would lie about Sarah being his sister, not being his wife. She was his sister, but also she was his wife. And he knew what would happen. He'd experienced the same thing before down in Egypt with the Pharaoh there. Why would he do this? He was fearful. You can think of root causes that would cause us to do what we do. It might have to do with fear. It might have to do with anger. It might have to do with lust. No one can see those things, but they're hiding down in our own hearts, and sometimes God just exposes them for us. Revelation. King Abimelech was warned by God in a dream that he was as good as a dead man because he had taken another man's wife. In verses 17 and 18 in chapter 20, we see that God doesn't leave things to chance or to the whims of a pagan king. He struck Abimelech with some kind of providential illness and his entire household. And so that was a reason that uh, Abimelech never came near Sarah. He was sick at the time. In fact, everyone was sick and must have been a rather painful sickness. Once again, in his mercy, God bailed out the patriarch from the predicament into which he had gotten himself and Sarah. Now we might uh, look at these things and say well Abraham's done a pretty good job certainly he's going to slip up along the way just as we do but today we want to consider the matter of recurring sin in verse 7 God identified Abraham as a prophet said that he would pray for king Abimelech that he might live prayer was a part of the work of a prophet as we later see in Moses life and then in Samuel's as well restoration king abimelech did what god told him to do and gave abraham his wife back in verse 14 abimelech was so glad to get out of this jam that as you see in verse 15 he told abraham to live wherever he would like to live in the entire land and abraham prayed for abimelech and god healed him and his entire household now that's basically the story we don't have a lot of other facts By which to interpret the story right here in the story, but we do have the rest of Scripture, and that's what we want to consider, even the things that we've already studied in the life of Abraham. So we ask the question what kind of testing will refine and purify the heart of one who would put his trust in God? What kind of testing? What kind of testing are you going through at this time? What can you expect? in terms of testing. For Abraham, we start off with the test of relatives. You remember there was strife between his herdsman and Lot's herdsman, his nephew, and something had to be done about it because we are brothers. Have you ever had uh, relatives in your family who didn't understand your commitment to the Lord, who didn't understand the standards by which you were seeking to live your life? What do you do? in a case like that well you know what Abraham did he was very magnanimous he said you go and take whatever part of the land you want and I'll take the leftovers A test in terms of relatives we want to have a magnanimous and magnanimous and loving response whatever comes along as we're standing on the principles of God's work and that brings us to number two worldly possessions is not the whole land before you. You take the best land. Of course, they had huge flocks and herds, so this is going to have a lot to do with their worldly possessions as they take the land and uh, feed all their flocks and herds on it. Naturally, Lot takes the best land, as we've seen, the plains of the Jordan, and Abraham takes the leftovers. Then related to that, worldly ambition. You will remember that the confederation of kings came and attacked Sodom and took away Lot and all the people from there and all the goods. And Abraham got together his 318 men and his household and went by night and captured everyone that had been taken and defeated the enemy and brought them all back. Abraham could have been a big man in Sodom because the king of Sodom recognized what he had done and offered him all the goods that were there then we come to parental affection parental affection if you're in the scripture verse 17 chapter 17 verse 18 and 19 abraham said to god oh that ishmael might live before me and you remember that he had such a love for ishmael and he wanted him to be the promised son But God said, no, your wife, Sarah, shall bear you a son and you will call his name name Isaac. Now, what does parental affection mean for us? Sometimes it means that parents will subsidize a sinful lifestyle on the part of a child. Perhaps a young man goes off to college and he's kind of living a life that is strayed off the path of righteousness. And parents would continue to support that lifestyle. I don't know how it might work out but we do have tests in terms of parental affection. And then the impossible, Genesis 18.10. I will return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah and Abraham were very old at that time, advanced in age. Are there some things in your life that need to be worked out that are just impossible? Be sure you pass the test of faith. It may not have happened yet but it may be just around the corner. And then we come to the test of courage. And we see two failures in this area. The uh, Egyptian failure where he told them this was his wife. And then in the land of Philistia where he told them the same thing in chapter 20. So twice he fails in the matter of courage. But you remember an occasion in which he passed the test in Courage. He heard that his relative had been taken and he led out his trained men and uh, recaptured everything that had been confiscated and uh, led them back and defeated the enemy. So he had some times of courage. He also had some times of fear. That would be just about like myself, I would believe. Then we come to the test of obedience. David Thompson taught several weeks ago. Uh, with regard to Abraham being asked by the Lord to sacrifice his son. And Abraham quickly obeyed and took the three days walk to Mount Moriah with Isaac, his son, to sacrifice him. God intervened at the last moment, but Abraham had passed the test. And then the test of patience, and young people, this is a huge test often for us. When Abram left Haran, he was 75 years old. When the Lord came to him to tell him about the son being born next year, he was 99 years old. Now, you might be saying, hey, we don't live that long. I don't have that kind of time. Well, the Lord has his timetable, and he certainly knows what is best. Then Abraham passed the test of compassion. How are you doing on the test of compassion? you remember, he was interceding for the people of Sodom because Lot and Lot's family was there. And he worked it down from 50 to 10 righteous people. But unfortunately, they couldn't even find the 10. And then finally, we jump to the New Testament. And we see the New Testament commentary on Abraham and his faith, Romans 4.20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. That's the commentary on the life of Abraham. That ought to be really encouraging to us. Abraham is remembered for his faith, not for his lapse in faith along the way. And he had several. Abraham is remembered for his courage and his obedience, not for his fear and delayed obedience that we saw again along the way. What will we be remembered for and for what will we be judged? Will we be judged? Here's a verse that states the fact that every Christian will be judged. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive, be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. What is that? Whatever it is, it's not judgment for salvation. Because Paul tells us very clearly in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you are a true believer, you have been truly converted, you will not be judged for your eternal salvation. But there is a way that you can tell. How can you know if you have been truly converted? Those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And there are definitions given all over the Bible with regard to what that looks like. Those who walk after the flesh and those who walk after the Spirit. And we're talking about the trend of your life. Now, so far as the deeds done in the body, we get some additional insight on that from Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold... "'silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. "'Each man's work will become evident, "'for the day will show it, "'because it is to be revealed with fire, "'and the fire itself will test the quality "'of each man's work. "'If any man's work which he has built upon remains, "'he shall receive a reward. "'If any man's work is burned up, "'he shall suffer loss, "'but he himself shall be saved, "'yet so as through fire.'" So I would suggest to you that God judges a believer, not for salvation, but for service. Usefulness in service is based not on isolated instances of failure, but on the general trend of a person's life. That's a great relief, isn't it? We remember Moses as the meekest man on earth and a great leader not for murder and his anger that kept him out of the promised land. We remember Joshua for his courage, faith, and leadership, not for his failure to seek the Lord in the case of the Gibeonites. We remember David as the man after God's own heart, a great man of courage, faith, and respect for authority, not for his covetousness, adultery, murder, stealing, and lying in the case of Bathsheba. We remember Paul as the great apostle to the Gentiles, writer of much of the New Testament, not as a blasphemer and murderer of Christians. We remember Peter as the bold preacher on the day of Pentecost and thereafter, not as a chicken hearted coward laying low until some rooster began to crow. So this is comforting. This is encouraging. We all make mistakes, but be careful. Is there recurring sin involved? If there is, what do we do about it? I'm not just talking about a thought that just presents itself on the monitor of your mind. If the crow is flying through the tree, you can't do anything about that, but you can keep him from building a nest there. No, I'm talking about something that you do, that you do over and over again, recurring sin. Have you ever heard anybody say something like this when they're trying to encourage someone who has strayed off the path of righteousness? Hey, we're all sinners. Don't sweat it. I do that all the time. I do things even worse than that. Nobody's perfect. You're forgiven. It's no big deal. Forget it. Now, there's certainly an element of truth in all of that. But do we downplay Sin? Is recurring sin a big deal? And is there any hope to eliminate recurring sin? And what should be my attitude toward recurring sin? Let's look in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as Christ is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The English Standard Version said, the one who makes a practice of sinning. Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. I think what that means is he cannot continue to practice sin as a trend of his life. Verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The word translated practice, poieho, means to commit or to continue. It refers to something that's done habitually and characteristically. What is the trend of my life? Is the trend of my life sin or is the trend of my life righteousness? Any analogy would break down, but the account is given of a businessman who was leaving home early in the morning and he was in a hurry because he was late and he stepped out the front door in haste, headed for his car out by the driveway but there was that little spot out of the driveway where he had intended to plant grass. And there had been a nice shower the night before, but he had failed to plant the grass, and now there was a little mud hole right there by the driveway. And in his haste, he stepped too close and got mud on his shoe and on his pants leg And he was very upset about that because now he had to go back inside and work on getting the mud off. And he said to himself, I should have filled up that hole and I am going to do it. The first time I get an opportunity, in fact, I'm going to make an opportunity, maybe this very afternoon. He is very purposeful in his plans to get rid of the mud. But then about an hour later, his three-and-a-half-year-old son comes out the front door and surveys his kingdom from the front porch. And he sees the mud hole. Ah, this is what he had been waiting for. Here is a chance to do that in which his heart delights. And he went over to the mud and he grabbed up a handful of the brown stuff. And it was just the right temperature and perfect consistency and he just dove right in to the mud you see he had a muddy heart and it didn't matter that mom had said you ought not to play in the mud in your clean clothes he's willing to risk any consequences that come every time it rains because he loves the mud in fact he was born in mud now you say hey he's just a little boy we can't blame him Well, we can blame him for disobedience to his mom, but his great-great-grandfather would probably share some part of the blame. And that would be Adam. Because of Adam, he was born in the mud. And unless he does something about his muddy heart at some point along the way, he's going to stay in the mud. And if he's not in the mud, he's probably going to be thinking about how much he would like to be back there playing in it. That's somewhat the difference between someone who practices righteousness and someone who is practicing sin. You see, we all sin. But what is my response to that? What is my attitude? Am I enjoying what I am doing? The dad purpose that he's going to eliminate the mud, at least eliminate that little part of the mud. And he's got a plan to do that. The little boy is not thinking about eliminating it because it's his delight. It's just what's in his heart at that time. Now, here's something we need to be aware of. When we purpose that we are going to fill in the hole and plant the grass, we need to be sure that we understand that we can't do that very well by ourselves. Well, what does that mean? It's difficult to get rid of the sin in our life. But by God's grace, praise the Lord, we can accomplish it if we're desperate enough to do something about it. We've said many times desperate men will take drastic action. Christ said, if your hand sins, cut it off and cast it from you. He's not talking about mutilating the body. He's talking about taking drastic action with recurring sin. What action do you need to take? Get rid of the television. If the television causes you to sin, get rid of it. Unplug the internet. Wait a minute, I've got to have the internet for my business. Get a new business. It would be better to eliminate the recurring sin than just go on with it. Paul, when he was Saul, was covered with the mud of sin. He was covered with religious mud. That is some of the worst kind. It's difficult to eliminate religious mud. But here's what Paul had to say. It can be done. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, he's the apostle by this time. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, excuse me, His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. Now let's stop right there. You mean I can receive God's grace in vain? Well, yes, I think what that means is if you receive God's grace as a believer and you respond to it and you put that power and motivation to do God's will into practice, you get more grace. But if you resist His grace, then the grace that's there seems to kind of shrivel up. It diminishes. So as we're willing to do things God's way, He just sends us more and more grace. Look at the grace that God gave to Abraham. Look at how we remember Abraham and how he's mentioned in the New Testament. So I want to be certain that I'm not resisting God's grace, that His grace would come to me in vain. And Paul goes on, but I labored more abundantly than they all. I'm going to be doing some things in this fight against recurring sin. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, his grace that works in you. But wait, I'm so weak. Well, Paul again in 2 Corinthians 12. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And he goes on to say in Romans 5, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you continually stepping in the same mud hole, experiencing the same recurring sin? Do you like it? Or are you just about fed up with it? Well, if you're sick and tired of it and you see it for what it is, then I would invite you as we pray to confess that to Christ and tell Him that today is the day you want to do something about filling in the mud hole. If you're enjoying the sin, it might be that Christ and His Spirit are not there to bring conviction in the heart. And that's a pretty dangerous position to be in. If you're just going on with the sin and you just don't mind it, that's, that's thin ice spiritually. Confess that you are a sinner. Ask Christ to forgive your sin. Ask Him to come into your life and take control of your life and put you on the path of righteousness as one who would practice righteousness. Shall we pray Heavenly Father, we look at Abraham and we see that uh, he is a man just like ourselves. How many times have we done the same thing over again? And yet we see from the New Testament that it is possible to put off the old self and to get a new attitude in our minds and put on the new self created to be like you in true righteousness and holiness. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that makes that possible, and we pray that your grace in our lives would not be in vain. We pray that we might say with the Apostle Paul that we have labored abundantly, yet not I, but your grace that works within me. Father, I pray for someone this morning who is dealing with uh, recurring sin, sin that is affecting their service to you, that is affecting their very focus of life. And I ask that you would give them courage and help them see sin as it really is. And I pray, Lord, that today would be the day when they would be willing to take steps along with your grace to depart from that sin, to begin to make allowance for elimination of that sin in the life. Father, if there's someone here who does not know you, I pray that this would be the day of salvation. Thank you that we can come to you in true repentance and in saving faith and ask you to forgive our sin and ask you to take control of our lives and make us to be like Christ. We want to live a life that is purposeful. We want to live a life that is committed to the service of your kingdom, that counts for eternal things. And Father, we pray that we might take drastic action against anything in our lives that would be an obstacle to that goal. And we ask all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.